And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Yeah. Welcome to 2022. We are recording this on the first day of the year. That's right. So far, pretty good. So far, pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we slept till three because we <laughs> drank too much and stayed up too late. Mm-hmm. So, you know. It's good so far. Yeah. Yeah. What are we watching today, Ben, on this first day of 2022? Today, Sarah, we're watching The Return of Dracula from 1958. <laughs> Wait, didn't we watch something? No, I'm thinking of The Return of the Vampire. There was Return of the Vampire, yes. Yeah. We've also seen The Vampire, and we have seen Dracula, but we have not yet seen The Return of Dracula. Okay. And despite the nature of the title, mm-hmm. this is not a sequel to either Universal's Dracula in 1931 or Hammer's Dracula that we literally just saw. Um, it's not a sequel to any particular Dracula. It's just sort of a sequel to the concept of Dracula. Maybe is it a sequel to the book? No, I mean, only in the sense that it (laughs) takes place later and Dracula's in it. But he's still alive, so it's a prequel. (laughs) No, that's not how time works. No, it's just it's just a Dracula movie because public domain and all that. Yeah. So tell us about it. So this indie horror film was produced by Jules V. Levy and Arthur Gardner of Gramercy Pictures. It was directed by Paul Landres and it was written by Pat Fielder. And this is the exact same team that had made The Vampire in 1957, uh, which we covered in episode 212 and ranks number 49 on the list, which does put it in the top quarter. Now, that was um, a science vampire, right? That's right. Yeah, he takes these pills and yeah, cool. Because I was about to like propose maybe this is supposed to be a sequel to that. No. But no, it definitely can't be. It's not. No, it's definitely Dracula. Yeah. Um, now, that film had been released on a double bill with The Monster That Challenged the World uh, from this same production team. So they followed that double bill up with a new horror double bill. Um, which must have not done as well as that first one because after this, that production team basically dedicates itself to Westerns, specifically the Rifleman TV show. Like Mr. Rifleman and his Rifleman family? No. <laughs> no, he's he's a Rifleman in the way that he has a rifle and he's a man. <laughs> now, you might be thinking, Ben, is this some sort of cheap cash-in on Horror of Dracula? And to that, I will say, here's some dates you decide. Okay. So Horror of Dracula had been shot in November through December of 1957 and was released in the UK on May 21st, 1958. While Return of Dracula was shot in October of 1957 and was released the same day as Horror of Dracula in the US. I think that they... Started making Return of Dracula, heard about Horror of Dracula, and was like, ah, we will shelve this until that com- that movie comes out 
so we can compete with it or rather be like the knockoff version. Potentially. So I don't think it was like originally designed to be, but it became that. Potentially. Um, definitely. It's more of like a mockbuster um, situation. Yeah. Yeah. Or like the kind of thing where you had like um, Armageddon and deep impact in the same year or the illusionist and the prestige um, one of those kind of situations rather than a, this was successful. Let's cash in starring as count Dracula is actor Francis letterer who would later say that he hated making this movie and that his agent had tricked him into it. <laughs> he was born in 1899 as Frantisek letterer in Prague. And he grew up in extreme poverty uh, working in a dry goods store. He first got hired into theater as a background extra for a play, basically playing himself, like just a, a stock boy in a dry goods store. Um, but he was fired from that play when it was found that he was like upstaging the main cast too much by being more <laughs> interesting than them. <laughs> he must have been a really good stock boy then. Mm. He fought in the Austro-Hungarian Imperial Empire in World War I and studied acting at the Academy of Dramatic Art in Prague. And from there began appearing on stage in sort of touring productions throughout Eastern Europe. In the late 1920s, he began appearing in German films under the name Franz Lederer, most notably with a role in G.W. Pabst's Pandora's Box in 1929. He then made his way to London's West End for theater and then Broadway in New York, uh, performing on stage, now under the name Francis. The rise of anti-Semitism in Germany led to the Jewish actor deciding that he would remain in the United States rather than return home. He began appearing in Hollywood films in 1934, initially in heroic roles, but as World War II began, he switched to villainous parts, often playing Nazis. He continued to act on stage as well throughout his career. His final theatrical film role was in 1959, but he continued to appear on television afterwards, including a 1971 episode of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, where he reprised the role of Dracula. So he didn't hate this movie enough to not come back to the role. Mm. Interesting. Later in life, Letterer and his wife, Marion, became highly involved in real estate, community beautification, Los Angeles politics, and philanthropy. Letterer served as the Parks and Recreation Commissioner for the city of Los Angeles and started up acting schools in LA and Washington, D.C. Him and his wife promoted UNICEF and worked on humanitarian efforts until his death at age 100 in 2000. 100. Good job, Francis. Yeah, absolutely. Our lead actress here is Norma Eberhardt, who was born in New Jersey in 1929. She was discovered by a fashion photographer when she was 17 because of her heterochromia. She has one brown eye and one blue eye. She signed to an agency and began appearing in billboard advertising campaigns. She began getting offers for film and television roles because of those billboard advertising campaigns. And in 1951, she moved to Los Angeles. By 1955, she had married French actor Claude Dauphin, and her most famous role was in 1958's Live Fast, Die Young, uh, a teen, like, beat generation crime noir movie mm -hmm. um, that became a successful cult film. 
Decades later, guitarist Slash would wear a Live Fast, Die Young t-shirt on tour, um, which had Everhart's likeness on it, um, which she found to be highly amusing. Sure. And she passed away in 2011. Okay. In a smaller role in this film is actress Greta Gronstedt, um, who was once quite infamous. She was born in Scandia, Kansas in 1907 to a family of Swedish immigrants, um, and her family moved to Mountain View, California in 1920. At the age of 14, she shot her 17-year-old boyfriend with a gun she had borrowed from a friend. Her story was that she had been like walking from her home to a school dance or something um, like late at night through the countryside. So she had borrowed a gun cause she didn't feel safe. And she'd had like a tiff with her boyfriend at school earlier. And he had come and found her and was asking her to like make up with him, um, you know, and, and have things back the way they were. And she was not agreeing to this. And he stepped towards her and startled her and she shot him. Uh, did he die? No. Now, the press uh, didn't really believe her story, and neither did her family, um, who apparently testified to the fact that she was an extremely like jealous and um, sort of unstable young girl. And so basically became the accepted story was that this had been a premeditated, like jealousy-motivated act that like he had taken a different girl to the dance than her and she like found him on the way there and came out of the shadows and shot him but what does the boyfriend say i don't know um <laughs> he did live uh so she was sentenced just to like reform school okay oh uh, yes the reform school to hollywood pipeline yes in addition to being sentenced to this reform school she was forbidden to return to mountain view Oh. Uh, so she couldn't go home again. So after getting out of reform school, she moved to San Francisco in 1926 and began modeling at age 18. Then the next year, she moved to L.A. with aspirations of becoming a big movie star. In 1929, she and her parents wanted to try like to reconcile. So they got on a steamer to San Francisco to meet her and that steamer collided with an oil tanker and sank and her mother died. Oh my God. She began appearing in like bit parts in movies starting in 1928 and she never really became like the movie star that she wanted to be. Um, her parts never really became larger than like supporting parts uh, except for she had a lead role in 1939's Hitler Beast of Berlin <laughs> as the like female resistance fighter uh, opposite Alan Ladd. She eventually retired from acting in 1970 um, after doing a lot of work on, you know, TV. And she was married eight times through her life. Did any of them get shot? Not as far as I know, at okay. least not while they were married to her. <laughs> Uh, her first marriage in 1923 was annulled because she was still a minor. She would have been 15 at that time. Her second marriage was in 1926 to a painter and was also annulled. Marriage number three was to a band leader and tango dancer in 1933, and that lasted for 18 months before they got divorced. Marriage number four was in 1935 to a photographer and also married and also ended in divorce. 
Marriage number five was to a Hollywood matte painter. And though she was planning on divorcing him, she discovered that he was still married to his previous wife. So all she needed to do was annul the marriage. Oh my God. (laughs) Marriage number six in 1944 was to an army major and was also annulled for the same reason. He was still married? Yes. What? What? In 1947, uh, there was marriage number seven. Um, The next year in 1948, she and her husband adopted a son who she won custody of when they divorced in 1951. Her final marriage was in 1965. And after her retirement from acting in 1970, she and her husband purchased a ranch in British Columbia, and she passed away in 1987, age 80, of throat cancer. Well, she eventually found love, it <laughs> sounds like. A, a long-term relationship. Right. Let's, let's put it that way. Right. The Return of Dracula was released by United Artists on a double bill with the jungle adventure sci-fi film The Flame Barrier, which had been produced by this same team. The music for both movies was composed by Gerald Freed, who had also composed the music to The Vampire. as well as the first four films of Stanley Kubrick, including Paths of Glory, most recently. Fried is probably most famous today, however, for his scores for five episodes of Star Trek, particularly Amok Time, uh, for which he composed the famous fight music. The Return of Dracula got negative reviews, such as the LA Times, which said, quote, it could have been put off indefinitely and no one would have ever known, unquote. Oof. When these two films were released in the UK, they were separated. They weren't on the same double bill. The Flame Barrier would see release with a U for Universal uh, certificate, meaning anyone can come see it, while Return of Dracula was delayed there until a September 1958 release, rated X, and retitled The Fantastic Disappearing Man. Huh. Basically, to, to bury it so that it wasn't in competition with Hammer. Yeah. Not that they really needed to worry about that because Horror of Dracula was such a huge box office hit that basically no one noticed this movie came out. Yeah, but when, you know, they both have the word Dracula in it. Yeah, you don't take chances. You uh, you shoot your competition in the kneecaps. Now, Return of Dracula was released by MGM on DVD as part of their Midnight Movies series on a double feature with The Vampire. So if you want to watch it, that's what you got to do. Find that DVD. And uh, if you do, that means you'll at least have The Vampire. Right. But I mean, hopefully The Return of Dracula is good. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the film from 1958, directed by Paul Landris. See you on the other side, everybody.
Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Return of Dracula from 1958, directed by Paul Landres. Ben, um, you held out on me. You, uh, you didn't tell me that there was going to be a color shot. Yeah, I wanted it to be a surprise. Well, it certainly was that. Um, but what did you think of the movie? I actually really liked this. Yeah, it's, uh, I think I would be like, yeah, this was pretty good if we had just watched Horror of Dracula. Sure, fair enough. Um, but even in Horror of Dracula's Shadow, The Return of Dracula is pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's very much just like 1950s suburban Dracula, but it's good. Yeah. Let me tell people what it's about. Yeah. Um, it's very much uh, what it says on the tin. Mm -hmm. Dracula has returned. Um, as the film opens, we get some narration saying, like, vampires are real and Count Dracula is one of them. And we see some vampire hunters in Eastern Europe being led by an investigator named John Meyerman. They have tracked this vampire to his tomb. Now, they never explicitly state that this is Dracula, but I think you can put two and two together. Mm hmm. They open his coffin to stake him, and he's gone. He's escaped. And we see that he is on a train heading to America. Also heading onto the train is a Bellic Gordel, um, who is an artist and is excited to leave Eastern Europe for the freedom and artistic integrity that is in America. Yes, you can't be an artist in Eastern Europe in the 1950s, you see, because of communism. <laughs> it's too bad that as soon as Bellic gets on the train, he happens to share a, a cabin with the mysterious man known as Dracula, <laughs> and he gets attacked almost immediately. And Dracula then takes on Bellic's identity and his plans of going to America and seeing his American cousins. So we meet Bellic's American cousins, uh, the widow, Cora, her teenage daughter, Rachel, and her young son, Mickey. Also in this town, Carlton, California, we meet Rachel's boyfriend, Tim, and the local minister, Dr. Whitfield. Now, the doctor, as he's just consistently referred to, he runs a parish, and that's where some people in the community who need help taking care of themselves stay, including a blind woman uh, named Jenny, who uh, Rachel kind of is the nurse for. So Bellick's eccentricities that we know are because he's a vampire are just chalked up to him being European. <laughs> He's <laughs> he's out all day. They never see him leave. And he returns at night. However, we as the audience see that he is keeping his coffin in the nearby abandoned mine with an open pit. Chekhov's pit. Now, Bellic's American cousins, Cora and her family, they are very welcoming. They're super excited to have him here. They're like, oh, he's going to be so posh and European and it's going to be great. Rachel is particularly excited because like they know he's an artist and she is of a creative mind as well. Only it's for um, costume design. And because he's an artist, Rachel's also like, hey, you should come meet Jenny. She's blind. And as an artist, you can describe the landscape to her. Um, well, 
Jenny does meet Belloc, um, but because she's the first to be attacked and turned into a vampire. Yes, she is the Lucy. Yes, and so she she rises at night, and it seems to be implied, though not explicitly stated, that um, as a vampire, she has her sight back. Right, yeah, 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 yeah. Now, throwing a wrench into Bellic's plans of turning the entire town of Carlton into vampires is uh, that the vampire control unit has tracked him here. (laughs) Now, they are disguised as immigration officers. Which honestly was like... Are they trying to make Ice the heroes? I mean, this this predates Ice by many Many, decades. Many a year. But um, I did think that the idea that like the thing that would stop Dracula from coming to America is like the office of immigration was kind of brilliant. Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> we see that it's actually the vampire control unit. They actually say that it's the um, European police authority. Yeah. Which isn't a thing. No, but it also implies that Interpol is fighting vampires. I think that. <laughs> so my impression of it is like, John Meyerman, who's like leading the charge here, he's basically our like Van Helsing equivalent. I have the impression that the European police authority is not a thing, but you know, he's just like, yeah, I'll just say that to Americans and they'll be like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And believe me, (laughs) because Americans don't know shit about anything. Well, it's not like they can double check this, right? Right. They don't have the internet. (laughs) Okay. So the vampire hunters are here checking on Belloc's papers um, and they end up taking like a secret spy photo of Belloc to um, basically as evidence if he's going to be a vampire or not because they aren't really sure. They know that there's a vampire afoot. However, Belloc recognizes this investigator uh, who is not Meyerman. It's just, you know, a red shirt investigator. Spoilers. And um, he has Jenny lure this investigator off Uh, And then Jenny turns into a white wolf and just mauls the shit out of this dude and kills him. However, Meyerman has already received the photo. He's already here in town and he's ready to pick up the trail. He gets the police on his side with one flash of his badge Hmm. and then gets Dr. Whitfield on his side also. And, you know, they're like, we don't want to just go around accusing people. But the way that we will definitely know for sure if Belloc is a vampire is if Jenny's a vampire, so we need to exhume Jenny. Meanwhile, Belloc has already been closing in on Rachel. She has some weird dreams. Um, He, like, comes to her. He speaks to her in her dream um, and seemingly attacks her. And she's having these lapses in memory. Rachel's Armina. Down to, like, being overly pure because she takes care of everyone. It's a little ridiculous, especially because she's supposed to be a teenager. Yeah. there's a lot of responsibility on her shoulders. But anyways, I I will move on. Now, the day after this attack on Rachel, there is the Halloween dance at the parish. And Rachel meets Investigator Meyerman and um, Dr. Whitfield. And they're like, hey, stay away from Belloc. And then she overhears them talking about exhuming Jenny. And so she, in her hypnotized state, goes to go to Belloc to the, in the cave. Uh, Tim follows because, you know, he's David Manners here. Sorry, what's his name? The Jonathan Harker. Jonathan Harker. <laughs> now, Bellick's final attack that would completely, you know, kill Rachel, turn her into a vampire. Um, this attack is interrupted 
by uh, Jenny's staking. So we have like this intercut bit going on. Um, we see with Jenny's exhumation um, that, oh, she's not in the coffin. So they put it back. They wait for her to come come in um, and then they exhume her. They put a cross on her so she is paralyzed and can't move or transform into mist or anything. And the doctor says a prayer over her and then they stake her. Um, and the minute that the stake enters the body and you have blood is where you get like maybe one or two seconds of color film. Um, yeah, it's one shot. Yeah, it's very the... quick. Blink and you miss it. Yeah, it's just the blood mm-hmm. bursting out. Um, and then they continue staking her and you hear her screams and everyone reacting to what is presumably a gruesome sight. Cut back to the cave and Bellic is also reacting um, as if he's the one being staked, but it's clearly like because of a psychic link or whatever. Yeah. That allows Rachel to get away, run nearly out of the cave and into Tim's arms. He takes the cross pendant that she has and uses it to try to uh, get Bellic to stay away. He does almost, Tim does almost get completely hypnotized because uh, he's useless, but they do manage to like snap him out of it. And they drive Bellic back with the cross and he ends up falling into the open pit Chekhov's pit and he gets staked from the debris that's at the bottom um and he turns into a skeleton the end yeah this movie's got the you know universal style ending where we've staked the vampire so the movie's over yeah yeah so the plot you know we've heard this kind of thing before it's a very like paint by numbers thing um it's very dracula it's very dracula um, but I do like that they've kind of reshuffled things a bit here with us being in the American suburbs and that Meyerman helps stake Jenny. And that's cool. Um, but in terms of actually defeating Dracula Belloc, um, it is just like a happenstance. He actually has no effect on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it kind of made it feel like the characters were really still in peril rather than having the like all-knowing expert by their side yeah mitigating that sort of hero van helsing thing from horror of dracula yeah so francis letterer may not have liked making this movie but i think he's a good dracula he's got the authentically eastern european thing that lugosi had um but he also has this very like disarming quality Mm -hmm. where like He's sort of charming in a low-key kind of way. Like, he he has charisma more than just, like... It's not so much that he's sexy, right? Or, like, a a kind of, like, Lothario or anything like that. He's just kind of charming. Yeah. In a likable sort of way. The other thing I noticed is this is a Dracula who doesn't really have a sense of tragedy about him. Like, it sucks that he's constantly on the run getting pursued down through the centuries by like vampire hunters um, and having to move everywhere and being alone and so on. But he's really like bought into the vampire thing. Mm -hmm. Like being a vampire isn't a curse for him that he has to bear. He's like, you know, telling Rachel like, no, like the world is shitty and bad and dumb and terrible. And the only way you like win over that is by just like voluntarily dying 
Yeah. So that we will live forever as undead creatures because then nothing can hurt us. Yeah, it's a very neat way of showing the seduction of the dark side. Yeah. And I really liked that it was different for Rachel than the seduction for Jenny. Because mm-hmm. with Jenny, um, it was a seduction of like, you'll be able to see and you can see me right now because of the telepathic waves. But like, it, it was just a very interesting way of showing the how, yeah, the average person can be seduced into wanting to be a vampire. Sure. But there's also definitely like some hypnosis mind control going on here. Absolutely. And it's definitely not what we saw in horror of Dracula where like they really want it. Like it's clear that this is still horror. Like the moments where Jenny or Rachel regain their faculties, they like realize they're in a horrific situation and like start screaming and stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. I think the rest of the cast does their jobs well. Um, But Letterer is really like the strong core of the movie. I don't know if anyone's bad, but just like most of the other characters aren't very interesting. I will say uh, Rachel has some good screams Mm -hmm. and has some good faces, Mm -hmm. uh, like shocked and horrified and hypnotized. And yeah, she does some good faces. Mm -hmm. The stylish black and white cinematography from Jack McKenzie looks pretty good for an indie flick like this. Mm-hmm. And I think it works really well with Landris's direction to form kind of like an oppressive, malevolent atmosphere in the movie. The color shot of the stake being driven into Jenny's heart is, you know, a cool surprise, but I think the rest of the movie looks good enough that it doesn't necessarily need it. So it's a blink and you miss it, as I said, and it does give a level of impact because you aren't expecting it. And of course, it happens right as the stake goes in. So it really underlines the literal impact of the mm. stake going into the heart. But because it feels so out of nowhere, I was theorizing that it was added in post because of Horror of Dracula. Possibly. Yeah, absolutely possibly. So the nature of it being like one shot uh, means that it would have had to have been spliced in to every single release print, like by hand. Mm -hmm. You know, if the entire rest of the movie from that point on had been in color, that would have been a lot easier to do because it would just be like, it's the last reel. Um, But the fact that they shot the whole movie in black and white and then there's this one shot that would have had to have been spliced in at the distribution stage i think gives some credence to your theory i Mm -hmm. think this was a last minute addition especially because well i mean there is some gore in the rest of the movie in the black and white parts there is a lot of gore uh, especially for the death of belek the vampire like he it's bloody and it's all black because Mm -hmm. we're black and white but um the movie isn't gory or bloody up until the stakings well um fbi not really office of immigration dude oh that's right when you see him mauled he's he's bloody i guess i was thinking of the fact that jenny's death is so bloodless right yeah and there isn't any of the like visible neck wounds that we had in horror of dracula yeah there's no wounds at all yeah i think the for me personally the real like glue holding this movie together and making it work is actually Gerald Freed's dramatic score. (laughs) 
Oh, music is on point as always. Yeah. Uh, love his stuff. If you are a person who is familiar with original series Star Trek, as always, you'll be able to like hear certain themes that he will bring back when he does that project. Absolutely. But for the most part, he's riffing off of Dies Irae from Hector Belioz's Symphony Fantastique. Yes. And it's not just like a play for play. He's riffing off of it. Mm-hmm. Um, when the movie starts, I turned to Ben and I was like, why do I know this music? Yeah. And it, yeah, it's you who identified what it was. Yeah, absolutely. So if, you know, you know that music and you know Star Trek, like you're going to hear stuff in this score that sounds familiar. Um, but, you know, the same way that if you listen to a lot of James Horner or a lot of Philip Glass, you start to hear the same shit over and over again. Yeah, some people just have telltale signs. Yeah. And um, uh, I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah, this, but the score he does here really does a lot to contribute to, like, the menacing feel mm-hmm. of the movie and really, really helps sell it as a horror movie. There are still some unfortunate uh, hard cuts. Like, mm. the music is swelling, and then we suddenly cut to a different scene, and it's silence. Yeah. Um, so that's I think, is just the fact that it's a low-budget movie. So you can see the seams. Mm-hmm. I think overall, like, kind of speaking to its budget, it does very well. It obviously is, like, as we said in the context setting, like, it doesn't have a large budget, and... If you're familiar with what low-budget movies look like, you will see all the hallmarks here. But I think the movie does a really good job hiding it, especially with the amount of characters and locations that they have. Sure. I think the direction and the editing and the music are all working together to do a really good job of keeping the story moving forward at a propulsive enough clip that you aren't really like feeling that drag mm-hmm. that you do when low-budget movies very clearly have like three locations that they're just sort of bouncing between. Yeah. Yeah. I think the movie does a good job of looking pricier than it is. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it was inevitable for Dracula to come to white suburbia with uh, the white picket fence and all that. I mean, we already saw that with the mummy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'm surprised how much I liked it. Yeah. It worked surprisingly well. I think it comes down to Letterer's performance, honestly. I think so. I I do still think it's like stretching things a little bit that like once landing in America, he would go all the way to California. Like there's so many places in between New York and California. Sure, but he's only just doing this because he's got like the papers for this specific dude. Yeah, but it's 1958. He can just like peace out and disappear. Sure, but Dracula's always been a dude who like to be honest, kind of like goes where the wind blows him and starts from there. He's like a, like a seed in that way. Because like in the book, like, like it's like, why does Dracula go to Whitby and start attacking like Lucy and Mina and, and all those people? Well, it's because Harker's the dude who came to his house to help him sell his castle and buy some new land in, in London or whatever. And Harker's, you know, engaged to Mina and these are all of his friends. So Mm -hmm. it's like, Oh, but also the boat crashes by Whitby. Yeah. Yeah. But like the reason he's going to the place already sets him up with these people. So like he's stolen Bellick's identity. So let's go to where he's expected to be and kind of branch out from there. Right. Mm -hmm. 
I think it lends some interesting parallels to the invasion literary themes that we mm. see in the novel and sure. with the 31 Dracula. I, I will say, so when we had our episode on the 31 Dracula, we did talk about how it is a little bit of a racist premise. Yes. Because, oh no, the European man's going to come and like infect your women. Mm-hmm. In Return of Dracula, I would say that it's racist still, but in a way of like, I think overtly, uh, the f- that freedom only exists in America. Sure, which is not, that's not so much racism as it is chauvinism. Sure. Um, the other thing here is like a very subtle notion of immigrants are good and we want them to come here and we're all cool with them being here, but... They better conform. Yes, they have to assimilate to our ways. And every time that Rachel's like, hey, Cousin Bellic, why do you never show up when the sun is out? And why do you only kind of hang around at night? And why are you weird and creepy? And why do you say I can't wear this cross around my neck around you? You know, and his comeback to her is like, oh, you want me to conform to your American ways. Well, I have to, you know, I come from a different culture and you have to be okay with that culture. So yeah, there's a little bit of like, immigrants are good, but you have to be willing to like assimilate. Otherwise, who knows what kind of weird, creepy shit you might be up to. The other thing that's going on here is the American 1950s anxiety about Eastern Europe absolutely right like there's there's no coincidence here that like Belloc is fleeing his country because of like implied communist oppression and that like this is you know Dracula's using that as a way in and then like the people who show up who are like who's this Belloc guy are the like immigration squad and stuff right yeah Belloc even has a line of like no I'm used to showing my papers it just happens a lot more frequently where I'm from yeah exactly so there's this kind of sense of like you know the American federal government protecting us from like communist infiltrators Mm -hmm. to this um and you know those communists they're atheists they don't like churches or crucifixes (laughs) or crosses absolutely that being said Tim is the worst Oh I yeah, the boyfriend. Him so much. He's he's definitely a big jerk. Um, I will say that the movie at least seems to be aware of it. Yeah, he at least does apologize a couple times for being a jerk. He says, I'm sorry for being a jerk. Yeah, the thing about it is like you can tell it's intentional in the movie because Tim's, you know, lack of manners and kind of like overall jerkiness are what is pushing Rachel to want to hang out with Bellic more because he's a, you know, distinguished European gentleman, right? And so there's this contrast where it's like, well, if only you could be more like Bellic, but, you know, Tim, on the other hand, is the first person to realize like, there's something off about that dude. Like, why is your European cousin showing up to, you know, your house and being like, ah, Rachel, so good to meet you. Let me kiss your hand. You know, Tim's immediately, (laughs) Tim's immediately like jealous in a very jerky boyfriend kind of way. But he's also kind of the first person to realize like, that's not, that's weird. It's a little weird. Yeah. So, so it is on purpose at least like so many times in these 1950s American movies, we get like, misogynistic angry um asshole heroes who the text of the movie is telling us like that's just what a good guy is and here like tim's like that but the text of the movie is saying like yeah but he's like a 16 year old boy 
Totally. Teens are jerks. Yeah. Yeah. So I did really enjoy The Return of Dracula, um, but I will say, again, that it's kind of a rehash of the usual vampire thing that Mm -hmm. we've seen. It didn't feel like it was reinvigorating the story or anything like we saw with Horror for Dracula or even 1957's The Vampire. Hmm. because that was just like a completely different interpretation of what vampires are. Hmm. So, um, and that's from the same team. So while I did like this, um, I don't know. Well, it's definitely not going <laughs> around number five where Horror of Dracula is. No. But yeah. But let's move on to ranking. For sure. So it sounds to me like you're implying you like this less than the vampire. Not by much. I think it's still, you know, within that range. But I was looking at what else was around the vampire. And below it is the werewolf, um, which I also really liked. But then, you know, you kind of look down and dementia is at 54. And that is such a unique, dare I say, inspired version of a horror movie that, like, we haven't really seen anything like it since. And we haven't really seen anything like it before. Um, so I put dementia as my ceiling looking down from there though. Um, blood of Dracula is at 58 and I was like, Hey, this is better than blood. of Yeah. Dracula. Yeah. Fuck blood of Dracula. So, <laughs> so my range is pretty narrow 54 to 58. Interesting. So I went the opposite direction from you. I liked this better than the vampire. Okay. Um, but not by much. So what I liked about this better than the vampire is The vampire on a structural basis is a little bit confused. It sets stuff up that it doesn't pay off. Mm -hmm. The central plot has a lot of loose ends. There are cool characters with fascinating backstories who are introduced and then just kind of thrown away. Um, So it's a little messy, um, despite doing some cool, unique things. It also has an element of the vampire being a werewolf figure in that he is tragic. He's a, well, and he's kind of a Jekyll and Hyde vampire as well, where he transforms back and forth and it's like, no, get away from me before it's too late. So I like this better than the vampire right above the vampire. We have stuff like I was a teenage werewolf, which is iconic and good, but like kind of silly. Yeah. And, um, back from the dead, which has really interesting ideas, but maybe doesn't pull them off as elegantly as it could. Above Back from the Dead is the Queen of Spades with Anton Walbrook and some really stylish filmmaking. And um, this is not as good as the Queen of Spades. So my range was 47 to 49. Real, real narrow. So if we look between the vampire and dementia, which is the space between our ranges, we've only got four movies to consider in that space. The Werewolf, the Maze, Dead of Night, and El Hombre Sin Rostro, The Man Without a Face. Mm, right. That one was very surreal and nightmarish. Psychological, definitely. It was, you know, because it's, 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 it's Fight Club. It's, it's <laughs> film noir Spanish Fight Club. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, I love The Maze for its gothicness. Uh, Frog Boy lives forever in my heart. I love, I love that movie probably more than you. Um, yes. It just occupies a space for me. Um, And then we have Dead of Night, which, of course, is the anthology with a very strong, like, ending story, some pretty good stories in the beginning, and, like, a bad comedy story in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
it does have that very interesting framing narrative. Yes. Which I really like. I think it's really clever. With the cyclical storyline. Yeah. So I think it's really well done, but I would be willing to consider the return of Dracula above it, um, but below the maze. Hmm. And the reason for that is I'm thinking about the very strong visuals that were in the maze, the very cool, um, I guess, makeup or costume for Frog Boy. That movie is also fairly tight in terms of, you know, following up on all of its loose ends. Dead of Night really stumbles with that comedic bit. But, you know, it's also something where, like, that was an established comedy team at the time. And maybe if we were British people in 1947, we would have been like, ah, these guys, we like these guys. But this is best horror movie. Yes, I know. I know. What do we think about this versus The Abominable Snowman? I was really torn about that. I think Abominable Snowman handles its pacing and tension a lot better than Return of Dracula. Return of Dracula is doing a pretty good job, but it definitely relies on Gerald Freed's music and score in order to really achieve it. That's fair. I really like the horror in Ghost Story of Kasane Swamp. Um, but that movie does have the thing where like the start is very horror and the end is very horror and the middle is very soap opera. So what about beneath the abominable snowman, but above Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi? Does that work for you? Yeah, I like it. Um, because I, I would agree that Return of Dracula does manage its tone throughout. Yes. Um, and doesn't have this like book and feeling that we are identifying with a bunch of movies in this area. Yeah. Um, what I really appreciated about Return of Dracula is once we got to 50 Suburbia, we didn't have to spend like a ton of time on Leave It to Beaver bullshit. Yeah. Like we immediately kind of got to vampire business. You know what I mean? For sure. And it definitely is a Leave It to Beaver like TV television show kind of suburbia. Yeah. An image of suburbia. The only But fuck Rachel's like she's going to be scarred for life. From this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like. The difference between the Mayberry family in this movie and like the 50s sitcom family is that uh, Rachel's dad is dead. Yes. And so there's almost like an implication that the thing that makes them vulnerable to Dracula's attack is that like father isn't there to know best. Oh, shit. Yeah, because Cora explicitly says it'll be so good to have a man in the house again. Right. Exactly. Oh, fuck. I didn't even think of that. Yeah, so it's very much a movie that's, like, in favor of, like, 1950s... Morality. And yeah, like... Structure patriot- of the home. Right, exactly. Um, and, you know, American values. Yeah, 1950s American values of nationalism and patriarchy. Yeah, exactly. That's the real horror movie. So where are we ranking this, sorry? Uh, we are ranking this at the new number 56, beneath The Abominable Snowman, and above Kaiden Kasane Gafuchi. Uh, so into that slot goes The Return of Dracula from 1958, directed by Paul Landris. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. 
If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask Box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us over Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast using our RSS feed and leave us a rating or a review, which helps algorithms promote the show to other people. Or if you want to take control away from the algorithms and do the promotion (laughs) yourself, you can do that over social media or even just like IRL by talking to a person. My God. If you have the financial means, we also would encourage you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content, including weekly cut content from past episodes for $5 patrons, and monthly gothic retrospective articles from Sarah for $10 patrons. Additionally, patrons of all levels get to vote in our monthly horror-adjacent bonus episode polls. Our latest one is up for the new year. See if you can figure out the theme. And uh, that goes towards, you know, everyone getting to hear that bonus episode at Mm -hmm. the end of the month. So if you want to help steer that conversation, you can over at patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Right now, the poll is like pretty much even throughout mm. all of them. So it's it's a tight race. It's a tight race. Yes. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, Sarah, we are watching Fiend Without a Face. Oh. Which happens to be number 92 in the Criterion Collection. Okay. So it's going to be a big deal movie. Probably. Probably. That's, that's fair. There's some movies on the Criterion list that... Um, are there for a good reason, but aren't like Horror of Dracula, you know? Because, mm-hmm. yeah, Horror of Dracula isn't on the Criterion list. What you do in Criterion? <laughs> anyway. Fiend Without a Face, next week on Scream Scene. Bye. Bye. Bye.